Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand. We're in Luke chapter 6. We're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We come to chapter 6, our text this morning, verses 1 through 11. Oftentimes it's preached as two different sermons, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 11. But for our purposes today, we're going to look at both of those vignettes together because both of them share a common theme, which is the Sabbath day. And so let's read now Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what John did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? And he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that he might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now this past week, uh, we closed the offices Monday and Tuesday in observance of the 4th of July. And uh, I have to confess to you that I did something that I promised I'd never do again. I took my kids to a shopping mall. <laughs> and while we were there, we were walking around waiting for our table at a restaurant, uh, killing some time. Uh, we passed by a store. My nine-year-old daughter said, what's a spy store? And I explained to her that that's a place where they sell equipment to help you catch someone doing something wrong. And I thought to myself, the Pharisees would have loved to have a spy store in their days because they had to spend a good portion of their day following Jesus everywhere he went. They were trying desperately to catch him doing something wrong. They never did, did they? They had to make up accusations against him ultimately because he was sinlessly perfect. Well, that's exactly what they were doing here in Luke chapter 6. They were following him on the Sabbath day. He and his disciples were traveling from one place to another. And uh, the tide had sort of turned on Jesus. Uh, we have a, a very wonderful internship program here. I've told you about many times. We've had the privilege of sending dozens of young men all over the country and indeed the world to preach the gospel. But before I send them out, I give them all the same lecture. I say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to your first church in the first six months to a year. It's going to be the honeymoon. And everyone's going to think you're great. They're going to tell you that you're the next coming of Billy Graham. And, and then after about a year, someone's going to come to your office and say something like, you know, Pastor, a lot of people are here aren't happy with you. And, and by the way, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for a lot of other people that don't have the courage I have to come tell you face to face. And you're going to start facing some opposition. 
And then uh, if you survive that opposition, then you're going to have some people who are out and out hostile towards you. And that's what happened to Jesus. Luke said that in the beginning, universally, everyone praised Jesus. He was praised by all. But then remember, he went to his hometown synagogue and he read an Old Testament scripture that was a messianic prophecy. And he said, I tell you that this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down and the people lost it. They were so angry, they drove him out of the synagogue up into a cliff and tried to, to kill him right there on the spot. And from that point on, Jesus faced opposition. And that opposition was led by this religious sect known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who were meticulous students of the Old Testament law, particularly the ceremonial and the moral law. And they felt that by studying the law, they could come to understand it. And, and as they studied to understand it through the generations as they passed, one would add another law. Now they didn't call them laws, they called them comments. But over time, these comments became just as binding to the people as the law. So much so that it became not a joy to worship the Lord on the Sabbath, but it became a burden. And that's why Jesus came along and he said, remember, that Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave to man a great blessing in the Sabbath. We hear about it, of course, in Exodus chapter 20. You can turn there quickly if you have your Bible in hand. And you know that Exodus chapter 20 is the place where we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments has to do with the Sabbath. Look at verse 8, Exodus chapter 20. This is what God says about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord. By the way, the word Sabbath means to cease or to rest. And in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God gave a blessing to mankind in the Sabbath day. It didn't have a lot of restrictions. Just stop doing what you normally do to make a living and rest on the Sabbath day. And so that was the context of what's happening here as Jesus and his disciples are passing through the grain fields. Now with that context in mind, let, let's go back to verse 1 and read it. Now it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath. That was not unusual at all. They did not have eight-lane superhighways in those days. They had little footpaths that separated people's property. There were no cyclone fences like we have today. And as you were passing through, you could reach out and touch the grain fields on either side of you. And so as they were doing that, his disciples grabbed handfuls of grain, rubbed them in their hands, and they began to eat the grain. Now, from our Western perspective, we say, well, that, that could be interpreted as immoral. They were taking grain that did not belong to them. And we know that one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal, right? But the book of Deuteronomy expressly says that when you're passing through, you may take enough to eat that one meal. Now, you can't harvest on the Sabbath with a big combine or the way you normally would, but you can take enough to eat for that day. There was nothing wrong or illegal or unethical about it. They were doing just what people did every day of the week. Verse 2, though, the Pharisees took offense. Why some of the Pharisees said, do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That's the first point of your outline. 
the legalistic objection. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And all of those phrases are important. Let's break them down. Why do you do? You see that the legalist outlook is always at the other person, right? Now they were following Jesus around trying to catch him in doing something wrong, which was unethical. They didn't see anything wrong with that though. And so they're outward focused. Why are you doing? Now that, that you there, I, I think takes into account everyone including Jesus. Now the scripture doesn't say Jesus was participating in this activity, only that his disciples were. But Jesus being a wonderful leader includes himself and takes responsibility for the actions of his disciples. Now what does it mean to do something unlawful? Something against the law. Now what law is that? Did you hear anything in Exodus chapter 20 that would prohibit these men from doing what they were doing? No. And yet they were referring to the commentaries that had been added. We know those collectively today as the Talmud. And I got online this week to see if I could purchase a copy of the Talmud. They exist, but I can't afford them. They're uh, 6,200 pages collectively. There are 39 divisions of what they call creative activities on the Sabbath. And let me just give you a few cherry-picked examples of some of the things that were forbidden in the Talmud. For example, as it relates to creativity and production, the Talmud forbids people from erasing more than two letters on the Sabbath. And you could not write anything at all. You could not ignite a fire. You could extinguish a fire, but only in the case of someone's life being threatened. So literally, if you go home from church today, your house was on fire. As long as no one was in the house, you were not permitted to put out the fire to protect your property. And then it has a division on agriculture and specifically on threshing and winnowing. Now, those are terms we don't use today, but threshing is when you cut the grain and winnowing is when you throw it in the air and you separate the husk from the grain because the, the kernel of grain that's inside is what you want. The husk is indigestible, not digestible. And so um, they took that and they applied it to every other form of agricultural production. So not only could you not harvest grain and separate the husk from the kernel, they took that to mean that you couldn't do anything that would be designed to remove something undesirable to get to something that was desirable. For example, in the case of a lemon, you were not allowed to squeeze the juice out of a lemon because that would be considered threshing or winnowing. You could not wring water out of a wet garment because that would be removing what was undesirable to get to that which was desirable. You see the pattern. I could literally give you hundreds of examples of this of things that had been added to the basic commandment of remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are not in the Bible. These were added by the rabbis and the Pharisees through the years, but by the time of Christ, they had become so pervasive that this was what was being taught as law. That's why Jesus said to the people who were just weighted down with these burden, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, right? because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was so attractive to these people and that's why, among other things, the Pharisees hated him because he was stealing their thunder. Remember every time that Jesus taught, the, the people came away amazed because he taught as one having authority, 
not like the Pharisees. Here's how the Pharisees taught. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said 200 years ago, which was commented on by Rabbi so-and-so 12 years ago and on down the line, they just added comment upon comment. And Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said of old time, but I say unto you, he said it with authority. Thus says the Lord and the people loved that. But the Pharisees hated him because he was stealing their thunder. They were jealous. They were full of pride because he included them in those who needed forgiveness. He embarrassed them publicly for adding these burdens upon the people. And so because they hated Jesus, they seized on every opportunity to try to discredit him. And their favorite tactic to do so had to do with Sabbath observance. And that is the context that we read here in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 5. And so they ask, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, secondly, we see the Lord's response. It's brilliant, as we might expect from Jesus. Verse 3, and Jesus answering them said, have you not even read? <laughs> he was getting their goat right away because they viewed Jesus as some uneducated carpenter's son from Galilee, right? Backwoodsman. They viewed themselves as uh, erudite and smart, intelligent. They come from the ivory tower. And who is this man to teach us anything? That's one of the things they re resented about Jesus. And he said, have you not even read? That got their attention. What David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone and gave it to his companions. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go back to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, but you can do that on your own. I'll just remind you of the story. David and his men were on the run from King Saul, who, like the Pharisees of Jesus, were jealous. Saul was jealous, right? Because God's favor was on David. And so they run down to this place called Nob, where the priests of the Lord were. This was before the construction of the temple. And he goes into the priest named Ahimelech, and he says, do you have anything here to eat? We're famished. And he said, all we have here is the consecrated bread. Now what the priests would do once a week, they'd put 12 loaves out on the table as a sign that everything belongs to the Lord. And at the end of the week, those 12 loaves were removed and a fresh 12 were put in their place. And the priests were allowed to eat the week old bread. He said, all we've got here is this week old bread. And David said, we'll take it if you'll give it. He said, only on one condition that you pledged to me that these men have not been defiling themselves with women. And David gave that good faith pledge and he gave them the bread to eat. Now, technically, David had broken several of the prohibitions of the rabbis and the Pharisees by doing that. But you know what? There was not a, a rabbi or a Pharisee within 100 miles who would ever say anything negative about David. You know why? He was David, right? He was their hero. And you never put down King David. And so Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing they revered David, basically said, in effect, there's one greater than David here, right? Look what he says in the next verse, verse 5. And he was saying to, him, to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. David was the king in their mind, the chosen one of God. But David, of course, was just a type and a foreshadowing of the true Son of God, right? who would come to, to save people from their sins, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning I created the Sabbath, I gave it to man, therefore I have the right to interpret the Sabbath law, right? Now, this 
set them over the edge because it was very clear what Jesus was doing. First of all, Jesus was declaring he's greater than David, which was a big no-no. But he went a step beyond that and he was equating himself with God, which in their mind was the worst kinds of blasphemy. Now, just keep that in mind now as we come to the second vignette here in verse 6. On another Sabbath, Luke says. Now, Luke was not overly concerned with chronology. You don't go to the book of Luke to try to find an orderly uh, indication of the historicity of when, when happened, then this happened. Go to Mark if you want to see that. Luke writes his gospel thematically. And the theme that he's concerned with here is the theme of the Pharisees' legalism as it relates to the Sabbath. And so he follows one story about the Pharisees and the Sabbath with another, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. So here, here we have the Pharisees again, watching Jesus like a hawk. And yet, what do they see? They see his compassion, the compassion of Christ. Jesus, as he customarily did on the Sabbath, went to the synagogue to teach. And as he was teaching there, he noticed this man with a withered hand. If you've ever had a broken bone, wrist, something like that, you know that in just six or eight weeks while you're wearing that cast, the muscles atrophy and you don't even recognize that arm when they take it off. Well, here's a man who had a permanent situation like that. His muscles had atrophied and his right hand, Luke says, Luke's the doctor, he's the only one that notices that apparently of the four gospels. And you know in those days your right hand was the, considered the dominant, although they still certainly had left-handed people in those days, but most people were right-handed. So to, to, lose the, to, to lose the use of your right hand was, uh, was very noteworthy to Luke. And so he takes note of that. And so what does Jesus do? He, he says, verse 8, he knew what they were thinking. You, you think he would avoid the conflict, but that wasn't like Jesus. He didn't avoid the conflict. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. It's the first altar call recorded in all the Bible. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or destroy it? Don't you love Jesus' response? What does he do? He does what he always does to the Pharisees. He puts them right on the horns of a dilemma, right? Remember, when they would ask him these questions designed to entangle him in an ethical problem, he'd turn the tables. By the way, do that next time you have a critic. Answer a question with a question. It drives them crazy. And this is what Jesus always did. Remember, as it relates to John the Baptist, he's, they ask him all these questions and he says, well, I'll answer that if you'll answer this question. John the Baptist, who sent him? Where did he come from? And they knew if we say, John's a great prophet sent from God, Jesus would say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you repent? And if we say he's a false teacher, the people will rebel because they love John the Baptist, right? And so he puts him on the horns of the limb. And so now he, he says, okay, you tell me, and this is before he heals the man, is it good, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? And then he heals the man. Of course, their mouths are shut, but they are fuming. Look at verse 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. The die had already been cast. They were already determined to do away with Jesus. They just needed a reason. And so every time we see them, they're, they're getting angrier and angrier. They're seething. 
with resentment. And, and here, here's a man who probably many of them known all their life, who had this terrible affliction that had sidelined him from many of the activities of, of normal life. And rather than rejoicing with him, they're full of rage. We said a couple of weeks ago, one of the evidences of a heart that's become legalistic is that we are disgusted by the grace of Christ in the lives of another person. We would rather see that person continue on on that path that leads to destruction than to see the Lord save them because we put ourselves in the place of the judge. Well, that's the compassion of Christ, but you see the crowd's criticism. They watched him closely. They were looking for a reason to accuse him. And by the way, I think there's a principle here for us. As believers in a a family of faith, we need to look for reasons to encourage and praise not to be on the outlook for reasons to accuse and discourage one another. If you'll notice, the place that this accusation took place was in a house of worship. This is in a synagogue, a place where they came ostensibly to meet with God. And look, I don't want to tell you anything you don't already know, but the church house is one of the places where people come to criticize. Criticize what other people are wearing or how they're singing or something they said in Sunday school or some grammatical error the preacher made. We go home and have the teacher for lunch sometimes. The the church should be the last place where we come to to criticize, but we ought to be confronted with our own need of a Savior and and humbled by that and thankful for Him. Well, what in the world does this have to do with us today? After all, I doubt very many of us in here come out of an orthodox Judaistic background. Surely this doesn't have much to say to us today. I think it certainly does. I think there's another principle in conclusion that we need to draw, and that is people always are more important than ceremony, right? People are always more important than ceremony. If you have to make a choice between a ceremony and a person, choose the person. That's what Jesus did. I told you before about the list my wife and I made out for our children. Things we wanted them to know before they left home. And right at the top is use things and love people. Because we tend to get that just backwards, right? We tend to love things and use people. And Jesus is telling us not to do that. But I I think the primary application we have here is, is the two extremes that we see in religion today. The two extremes that we see religion today are the same two extremes that existed in the the time of Christ and have always existed and will until Christ returns. You know that with a clock, the pendulum always swings out to the extremes. And so is true in religion. On one extreme, you have license. That is, we have people in our culture, and Jesus did in his day, who said, I don't even believe in God. All I have is the here and now. I'm going to live it up and I'm going to wring every ounce of physical pleasure out of this day. You know people like that? Go to school with people like that? Sure, all of us did. Maybe some of you lived like that at one point in your life. That, that you only go around once and so you got to go for the gusto, right? Basically every beer commercial ever made is based on that philosophy, right? License. Did Jesus deal with those kind of people in his day? Well, you better believe he did. Turn turn over to Luke chapter 12, just a few pages, to Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus gives a parable about that kind of 
attitude, that kind of philosophy of life. Luke 12, 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That is the battle cry of the libertine, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. For God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Here's a man that was going to wring every ounce of physical pleasure out of life, put his feet up, have a long retirement, and God calls that man a fool because he gave no thought for his soul. Jesus dealt with that attitude of license. But what he dealt with more often in his cultural context of Judaism was what we see in Luke 6, which is legalism. Now, how would we define legalism? Well, for our, our purposes, legalism is a dependence on morality or ceremony rather than faith. And, and so really, as I said, we have two extremes. There's really only two kinds of religion in the world. There is the religion of achievement and works righteousness, where I do enough good things or I impress God with my morality to get to heaven. And there's biblical Christianity, which Paul says... By grace are you saved through faith. It's not of works, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation by grace through faith, a gift of God. And that stands in opposition to all the other isms of the world, including Pharisaical Judaism. And that's what Jesus came to teach. That it's not dependence on the moral law or ceremony that saves you. It can never save and if there was ever a man who depended upon that at one time in his life, it was the Apostle Paul, right? Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews, until he was humbled by the holiness of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. After he saw Christ as he really was, and he saw himself in his own heart of darkness, he never again pointed to his works righteousness. He always pointed people to grace. So much so that a lot of people began to accuse Paul of a heresy known as antinomianism. Anti-against, nomos law. They began to say, Paul, you've just discarded the law altogether. And if you tell people that they can have their sins forgiven freely by the shed blood of Jesus, you're just going to destroy society because they are going to sin so much you can't even believe it. That was the attitude they had about this doctrine of grace. We'll turn over to Romans chapter 6, and we'll finish with this. Those of you who were with us on Wednesday nights for a couple of years as we studied through Romans will remember this chapter. Paul was like Jesus. He answered his critics with questions. And so their criticism of him is antinomianism. They say, Paul, uh, if, if we get grace... When we sin and grace is a good thing, that's going to cause people to sin more to get more grace. You follow the logic. Here's what Paul says, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Question. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Should we sin more to get more grace? And look at verse 2. May it never be. 
Now in the Greek, that is one phrase, meginoita, absolutely not, perish the thought. It's the strongest negative in the Greek language. He could not use a stronger word to say no. And then he explains what he means. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now who's died to sin? Those who've been born again. Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Praise the Lord, right? So what he's saying, here's what happened when you're, you're, before you're saved. You are thinking you're free. <laughs> That's what the libertine thinks, right? I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm the captain of my own destiny. Paul says, no, you're not. You're a slave. You're a slave to your own sinfulness. You don't even know it. So the Holy Spirit takes the message of the gospel. He quickens it to our hearts. He opens our blind spiritual eyes. He causes us to see our condition as it really is, as he did Paul on the road to Damascus. He gives us the faith to believe, and we are born again. And when we're born again, in some mystical way, we are united with Christ eternally so that everything that is true of Christ becomes true of us. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are counted dead to our old life, we are united with Christ in baptism. We are in him and he is in us. And we are crucified with him. And Jesus goes so far to say that we have been raised up with him in heavenly places. These are the great benefits and blessings that Paul refers to in the book of Ephesians. So if a person is united with Christ, is that person going to increase in sin or decrease in sin when they're saved? That's called sanctification, right? Basically, sanctification is the decrease in the frequency and the intensity of sin over a lifetime. And so that's not to say that we don't stumble, that we don't fall. We don't even go back to habits of sin. It just means that when we're saved, our attitude towards our sin is fundamentally changed forever. We hate our sin. And when we sin, we confess it, we get right back on that path of sanctification, and we keep making progress until we die or till Christ returns. But you know, you still hear this cry of antinomianism today uh, when, when we preach this simple gospel of salvation by, by grace through faith. I heard one old pastor say to this criticism, they said, now pastor, if I believe that, that I can just ask Jesus to forgive me and I'll, I'll go to heaven, Man, I would just sin up a storm. I'd sin all I want to. You know what the pastor said? He said, yeah, I do. I sin all I want to. But since I've been saved, I just don't want to like I used to. The Lord changes our heart. And really that's the point with the Pharisees. The Lord just doesn't want our presence. He wants our heart. The Pharisees were present right along with Peter, James, Andrew, and John. Every time Jesus taught a lesson or did a miracle. Their response is that they bowed their knee to his lordship. The Pharisees' response is they hardened their heart and became angry at the grace of God. What about you? How will you respond today to this offer of forgiveness? Will you receive it gladly? Will you celebrate it? Will you rejoice to sing about it in a moment? Or will you close off your heart to it? 
Maybe when you see other people rejoicing in it, you get angry and say, what are they so happy about? What they're so happy about is they once were blind and now they see. They once were lost and now they're found. They once had an address that said hell and they have a new address that says heaven. If there's anything to rejoice about, it's that. Would you receive this free gift today? Would you despair of any works righteousness, any ceremony, any law that you can obey so well to impress God? You can't do it. It doesn't exist. And would you simply, as a humble beggar, poor in spirit, receive this gift of salvation that he offers? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we live in the same kind of world that Jesus did, where the pendulum of religion swings between legalism and license. Father, we know that the only saving truth is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, that he has done everything that is necessary. He has fulfilled all righteousness. And so when we are in him, we are saved and safe from your wrath. So Father, I pray if there's a person here today who entered this room trusting in their own goodness or their own ability, Father, that you would disabuse them of that right now by your spirit, that they would see their desperate need of a savior and that they would cry out to you for forgiveness, knowing that you hear that prayer. You answer it as you have for so many in this room already. Father, we are grateful as Christians that you have saved us, you have unlocked us from our prison of sin. You set us free, but not free to sin, free to serve you. So Father, thank you for that. Will you find us good and faithful servants? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.